Hey everyone, my name's Johnny. I'm one of the leaders at Church Central. And at Church Central, um, during lockdown, we are living in Jesus's famous body of teaching known as the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, 33 to 37. And I'm just going to get straight into it. Jesus says this. You've also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. And do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Now, if you were here last week, perhaps you'll be relieved to hear that today's passage couldn't really be any different to last week's passage if it tried. And uh, it might even strike you that we're in a bit of a lull in chapter five here. This is my um, experience of reading this part of the Sermon on the Mount often. I get to the bit about anger and murder and stuff that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I think to myself, really, and think, whoa, I really need to get my anger in check because I don't want to kill anybody. That seems really serious and pressing. And then I go to the thing we looked at last time and I say, whoa, OK, fair enough. Cut lust out of my life. Don't look at pornography because I don't want to shipwreck my marriage. Again, it seems very, very pressing. And then my eyes drift forward in chapter five to the next bit, the exciting bit about turn the other cheek. And even further on, the next bit after that, love your enemies. And then I come back to this passage we've just read today. And I think, well. Seems a bit of an anticlimax, really. Seems a bit of a breather, a lull in the whole chapter. Because it's just about, about telling the truth, isn't it? And some of the stuff in here is some archaic stuff about vows that I don't really understand. So, well, I'll pay attention to the other stuff, but maybe this one I can just, well, well I'll just skip it. Now, the minute I put that strategy into words, obviously I realise how stupid that seems. Um, if Jesus thought it was important enough to say it, uh, I guess that means it's important for us. But actually, there's a far more pressing reason not to see this bit as the optional part of Matthew chapter five, because God in his wisdom has given us an incredibly cautionary tale in his word that would say, no, you really need to listen to this. Because in the book of Acts, there are two characters who take an approach probably very, very similar to the one I've just laid out for you a moment ago. And these two people were members of the early church uh, in Jerusalem. And I, I guess probably they would have been familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. And by many standards, they were doing pretty well. Uh, as far as we know, they hadn't killed anybody. Uh, their marriage seemed to be going well. They'd even actually uh, done well on some of the other bits we haven't got to yet. So, for example, with their money, they were pretty generous people. But they neglected the teaching Jesus gives here. And it had disastrous consequences. I'll read you uh, the account of them. It's found in Matthew chapter five, uh, verses one to 11. This is what it says. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. 
As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. So what did these two guys do wrong? Well, they lied. They said they'd given all the money from the sale of their property away to the church when they'd actually just given some of it away. Again, you might think, well, they gave some of it. That's a pretty good act. That's quite generous. And yes, it's not. Peter's not questioning their generosity. But the problem was they presented a public face to the community that wasn't representative of what was real. They let their yes be no and their no be yes. And God found it so offensive that he ended their very lives. Now, listen, I'm not suggesting uh, that that is exact thing will happen to you today if you don't take Jesus' teaching here on board. The, the case of Ananias and Sapphira seems like an exception rather than the rule. But I bring this up to help focus our attention. As always in Jesus' teaching, God takes these things really, really seriously. And he wants us not just to listen, but to apply this to our lives for our own good, for the good of our churches. And as we'll see, for the good of all those outside of our churches as well. OK, so the last verse of today's passage seems to to kind of put us into the realm of truthfulness. I think we can understand that. We need to say mean yes when we say yes. We need to mean no when we say no. And so that bit's clear enough. But the rest of it does seem pretty foreign to us. At least it seems pretty foreign to me uh, anyway. So that's where I've been having to do a lot of my prep and study here. So I want to explain to us to be able to understand this. What is all this stuff about vows or oaths all about? And then I also want to ask the question, well, why is Jesus so bothered about it at all? So let's start off. What did making vows mean for Jesus' audience? For us, Vows are something that we say at weddings, aren't they? And as for oaths, oaths are the things that you say in court. And apart from those two uh, places, I guess vows and oaths wouldn't mean a whole lot to us uh, in our lives and don't seem particularly applicable. However, in the Old Testament of the Bible, making oaths before God was a pretty ingrained and long-standing part of the religion of God's people. In Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 to 2, this is what Moses tells the people. This is what the Lord has commanded. A man who makes a vow to the Lord or makes a pledge under oath must never break it. He must do exactly what he said he would do. This was the kind of verse that Jesus refer was referring to uh, in our passage today when he said, you have heard that our ancestors were told. I mean, this is what the ancestors Moses uh, would have told them. And the practice basically was originally this. It was, as it says, you make a vow directly to God. And basically what you'd be doing is you'd be trying to communicate to other people that you were definitely for real. You were definitely telling the truth. You were going to do what you said you were going to do. And you did it by calling God himself as your witness. And essentially what you'd be doing is you'd calling on God directly to punish you if you failed to fulfill what you said you were going to do. 
Now, as we'll see a bit later, the practice of vows did change and evolve over time in the Old Testament, and it became a little bit weird. We'll come back to that later. But the basic setup is just as I've laid it out. And the obvious question I think to ask would be this then. Well, what's the problem? Why is Jesus so bothered about this? Surely this is a good idea, or if not a good idea, just pretty neutral. I mean, it is a way of ensuring that people keep their word, which is a good thing. And it is also underlining the importance of honesty, which is also a good thing. So why would Jesus attack the entire process of vow making and oath making? What was Jesus's problem with this? Well, the major problem, I think, is this. To rely on such a system of vows and oaths is to basically admit that you do not expect people to tell you the truth in normal circumstances. I imagine that uh, pretty much every parent has had to uh, educate their children in this sort of thing, uh, particularly as they relate to their siblings. And so uh, let's imagine uh, a conversation that might happen between siblings, um, something like, if you give me your sweet, I will give you two Pokemon cards, says the six-year-old boy, to which his nine-year-old sister replies, do you pinky promise? The six-year-old boy says, of course, I pinky promise and does some little thing with his fingers. I think it's that, isn't it? The nine year old girl, still not convinced, says, do you cross your heart and hope to die, etc, etc, etc. Now, uh, if this conversation played out at all, I, I'm sure any of us that are parents uh, would step in at some point and say, hey, wait a minute, guys, you don't need to pinky promise or do any of these things. Your word should be quite enough. The point is, I think it's a very similar situation to what was going on with oaths. The point is, if we have a system whereby some code words are used to show that we can really be trusted, we're basically admitting that we can't really be trusted most of the time and the rest of the time. So to rely heavily on a system of vows and oaths is to accept a low level of honesty in the community at large. And listen, Jesus does not have such low standards for his kingdom communities. Again, let's zoom out and ask what is going on in the Sermon on the Mount? What is this whole body of teaching all about? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is laying out the manifesto for the kingdom. He's pointing for a different way to live, not just for individuals. He's laying out the blueprint for a whole different type of community. So this teaching is not laying out general truths to help generally human beings be less mean to each other. No, it's specifically addressing how we interact with our brothers and our sisters in Christian community. Now, the New Living Translation is what I read from, and it's generally a very good translation, but it, it kind of fudges over this a little bit uh, in, in the translation, and it, it, it it doesn't translate the words to show us this. But in other translations, we see this. So, for example, in chapter 522, it's not if anyone is angry with someone, it's if anyone is angry with his brother. Next verse. If you remember that your brother has something against you. Chapter seven, verse three. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? This is a family affair. This is a family instruction to be worked out in the family of God, the kingdom of God in the church. Now, important to say at this point, this does not mean that it doesn't matter how Christians treat people outside of the church community. In fact, uh, Jesus goes on to specifically address uh, some, some of those relationships as the Sermon on the Mount goes on. 
In fact, we could go further than that, actually. In one way, uh, everything that is being done in the church community and Jesus encouraging people to do is deliberately for those outside of the community. So they'll see a different way to live and then come to accept Jesus as their king. Remember Matthew 5, uh, 13 to 16, right at the start, setting the context for the whole of the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says to his people, you are salt, you are light. You are to be distinct from and visible to the world around you. You are to be a beacon, this city on a hill saying, look, everyone, look, there is a different way to live. Come and join and be servants of the king. Come and become citizens of Jesus' kingdom yourself. So let's put all this together then. Jesus' problem with oaths and vows was that he wants to, the communities of the king, churches, to be places of such radical truthfulness that we don't need systems like that. We don't need to play games like that. And as we build communities like that, what he's saying we should be doing is looking to demonstrate a way of living that is so attractive to the world around us that they want in too. So Jesus isn't just telling us how to live. He's laying out his expectations for what church communities should really be like. I think as he does that, he puts his finger on three different things uh, in this passage. I want to look at them one at a time in the time we've got left and make this really practical for us. And the first of them is the obvious. Our churches should be places of truthfulness. Simply put, our churches should be places where our yes means yes and our no means no. And where we're very careful to make sure that we're honest with one another. Now, I've kind of said it already, but let's just pause for a second and consider why living like this and building communities like this would be so attractive to those outside of the kingdom, to those who aren't Christians. Because the reality is that the world at large is not a place of truthfulness and people recognise that this is a huge problem. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone who's not a Christian is a dirty, lying scumbag. Not in the slightest. You might not be a Christian listening to this today and you might be a very honest person. And I, I know many who would be in that uh, that category. However, if, you, if we zoom out from the individual and consider society as a whole, I think you get the picture quite clearly. Lying is assumed practice at pretty much every level of society. Corporations twist the truth to sell us their products. Websites peddle fake news so that we can click on their links. Our rulers, uh, members of our government, routinely lie to us and no longer even bother to apologise. But as usual, it's not just the shadowy puppet masters who have a problem here. This filters into every area of our lives and society. What's the result of all this deception? Well, there are many problems that develop and many negative effects. But I think the most damning would be this. We no longer as a society even believe that the truth exists. Lying has become so commonplace that it's not just that we don't know who to trust or don't trust anyone. We've decided that truth itself is a lie. We live in a post-truth world, don't we? And that's a pretty extreme thing. We think that's normal. That's really quite extreme. And it leaves people feeling confused, disoriented and deeply suspicious. And I think looking for an alternative. Well, we in the kingdom, we in the church are called to model something different. 
And you know what? As we do, I think people would find that incredibly attractive. And that would be a great advertisement for Jesus. Now, he does do what he says he does. His kingdom is a good thing. However, this does go beyond just telling the truth. The first uh, thing that, that this is telling us church should be like, the churches should be places of truthfulness. Yes. But secondly, our churches should go a step beyond. Our churches should be places of openness and authenticity. When we hear instructions of what we should do and shouldn't do, the human thing to do is to reduce those things to simply moral rules and technicalities. Jesus addressed this uh, lots already, perhaps most clearly in the very last bit we saw last week about divorce. He was like, you have heard it said that it is legal to get a divorce if you file the right paperwork. And so therefore people heard that and thought, well, fair enough, I'm not very happy in my marriage, so I can get an out here and I'm following the rules. I haven't done anything wrong. Fantastic. But Jesus made it clear, no, no, that's not the point. I, I want to get to the heart of things. Marriage is important. You can't just give up on your marriage. He's not, he's not saying this is not just about keeping the rules and keeping your nose clean. This is about the spirit of what's going on. And his teaching on truthfulness here is exactly the same. The whole system of vows was from a rule keeping mentality. And it was a great example, sadly, of how if you want to reduce our moral responsibilities to rules, what you're going to end up with is a society that does exactly the opposite of what they're meant to do and don't feel guilty about it. The whole system of vows, which was intended to get people to be honest, actually became a really clever way in the ancient world to lie without any form of punishment. I know it sounds bizarre, but that's what happened. And we don't necessarily see that so much in the Old Testament, but from other Jewish writings of the time. I'll show you what I mean. You might have wondered in the passage we read earlier from Matthew 5, why Jesus gives this list of different types of vows. Do not say by heaven, by the earth, by Jerusalem or by my head. Now, it turns out those were all very common vows uh, in the ancient world. And the reason they were common is because things had evolved a little bit from Numbers 30 that we'd seen before. And while the usual way in the Old Testament was to vow uh, directly appealing to God, people began to see that as potentially risky. I mean, if you were to say something like, uh, may God strike me down if I don't do X. The problem is, even if you have the best will in the world, circumstances might conspire against you and stop you doing X. And therefore, you're left in this awkward position where you've been like, oh, man, I've called God to strike me down. What am I going to do? It seemed a little bit risky and potentially quite disrespectful uh, to God. And so people decided to tone it down a little bit. And they thought, let's not make vows by God, but let's swear instead by things that are connected to God, like the heavens where he lives, the, the earth that he created, Jerusalem, his holy city, etc., etc. However, what ended up happening was when people didn't fulfill their vows, they then used this whole setup as a clever escape clause to get out of any sort of uh, accountability. Because they'd say, yeah, well, I know I vowed by heaven, but I didn't technically swear by God, did I? So my vow wasn't totally binding. It's a bit like I pinky promised, but I also have my fingers crossed at the same time. Same sort of idea. If we reduce truthfulness, though, to simply do not lie, I think we're in danger of doing exactly the same thing. 
I'll try to be honest with you, seeing as a sermon about honesty. I've done this and do this quite a lot, I think. And uh, the following example is not a, a precise one that's happened, but I would do things like this sometimes, I, I think. And maybe I need to rethink my strategy on stuff. I'll give you, I'll give you the example I thought of. Let's imagine someone said to me, uh, Johnny, are you free this afternoon? And the minute the words left their mouth, I suddenly realised that uh, on that given afternoon, I had absolutely no commitments at all. But I also realised that I would massively prefer to sit on the sofa reading my book than to have yet another Zoom conversation with a friend. But you see, I had a problem because I don't want to tell them that because that seems a little bit rude and I don't want to lie. So what do I do? Well, for me, the game would work a bit like this. My answer would be, oh, look, I'm really sorry. I'm actually not free this afternoon. And in my head, what I'd be thinking was, yes, you see, because are any of us ever free? I mean, the laws of physics are in operation, aren't they? I mean, we can't just get up and fly. We can't just do what we want. And our genetic predispositions, they bind me as well. And Oh, well, you throw in God's sovereignty. Well, what is free will in the first place? No, technically, I'm not free. <laughs> now, I'm not saying, like I said, that exact thing has happened, but I would sometimes play similar games like that to get myself off the hook. I haven't really lied, but in a sense, I've missed the whole spirit of what's going on. Jesus is aiming for something more than just not lying technically in his communities. I think he wants us to live lives of openness with each other. He wants us for our whole lives, not just the things we say, but our whole lives to be real and vulnerable with each other for the presentation we give of ourselves to be accurate to what's going on on the inside, to trust each other and to be trustworthy. That's a different thing. We could sum it up by saying that Jesus wants his communities, the communities of the kingdom, churches to be marked by authenticity. Now, I recognise at this point. This is a trendy place to land in a talk. Authenticity. It's, it's one of the buzzwords, not just in churches, but in our culture as a whole. Anyone who says we should be authentic, everyone's like, yay, authenticity. Authenticity is a great thing. But when we land on a buzzword, I, I often find it's good to just pause because some words that are great to cheer for, yay, that word's great. Sometimes they become devoid of any actual substance or meaning. I mean, there's a question here. Um, if we all agree that it's good to be authentic, why is it that people in our culture need to keep encouraging us to be authentic? Why don't we just do it naturally if we all think it's a good idea anyway? You see, there's a problem with authenticity. We all like the idea of authenticity. In, in theory, it's great. But in practice, it's really, really hard. So you've got all sorts of phrases, phrases like be yourself or drop your mask or wear your heart on your sleeve. And they sound like things we want to do. But then we think about what our, who our, we are and what our heart is and all of that sort of stuff. And we think, hmm, maybe it's better not to be authentic. What if yourself is not very impressive? Why would you want to be yourself then? What if what's behind the mask is not very clever, it's not very funny, and it's not even very nice. What happens if your heart is actually quite dark a lot of the time? Why would you want to wear that on your sleeve? 
I've noticed that authenticity in the world seems to work a little bit like this. People step out and they show their true colours and everyone applauds them. Well done for being real. Well done for being authentic. Go. You're, you're being you. Well done. And then after the cheering dies down, those people slowly back away from the person as they find out that their true colours are not actually that attractive after all. People put up masks for a reason. Now, there's much more that we could say about authenticity, but I just want to point out one thing that may be helpful when we consider authenticity in the context of the kingdom. Do you remember the first words of the Sermon on the Mount? In the first line, Jesus spells out the kind of person who is most specifically suited for the kingdom. Who are they? Remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who's this kingdom for? It's for the poor. It's for those who recognise right off the bat they have nothing to offer. They're not impressive. It's for those who recognise their need, desperate need for help and for improvement. They're the ones that get the first welcome into Jesus' kingdom. And you know what? Anyone who enters after them needs to learn how to adopt their posture. Otherwise, they're not going to last here very long. Here's the deal. The, the kingdom uh, is the place where the entry requirement is saying, I'm not very impressive. I need help. I haven't got it all together. I've failed. And those who own up to those things then are not an embarrassment in the kingdom. They're the role models of the kingdom because this kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. Now, we could take this too far. It's not that we revel in our character flaws or our failings. But I would say this, that if you relish the idea of dropping the mask as you think to yourself, well, what's under the mask is so wonderful that people are, that it's going to knock their socks off. Well, I think you've got a problem here. I'd be concerned about your place in the kingdom and would suggest you to repent of your pride. Otherwise, you might not be around here for that long. No, the kingdom, the church, is a place where we can be honest with each other. And amazingly, it's a place where poor and broken and silly people like me, and I guess like many of you, get to open up to each other and receive help from others. But even more amazingly, we get to be God's way of helping others to grow too. Let's aim for our church to be that kind of thing, should we? But before we finish, there's one more thing that Jesus is teaching here tells us about what our churches should be like. And it's a bit of a left turn in some ways. Um, but let's look at it as we finish. Our churches should be places where we recognise God's presence with us. As I said already, to adopt a system of vows or oaths kind of admits to a general level of mistrust and dishonesty in the community as a whole. But it also says something about our attitude to God. To adopt such a practice really speaks of a belief that God is distant and generally disinterested in our lives most of the time. Now think about this for a moment. Isn't it slightly odd to say that if I say a secret formula, God will call me to account for what I do? If I say, hey, God, listen up really carefully. By God be my witness right now. Well, then he'll call me to account. But if I don't say that secret formula... Well, he won't do that. 
It's like I could spend my, spend my whole life cheating and lying and generally being really antisocial and annoying. And God doesn't pay a blind bit of difference. But if I use those magic words, let God be my witness, suddenly it's like a, a buzzer goes off in heaven and God wakes up and goes, right, I must pay attention now because if you don't fulfill this, then there'll be trouble. I mean, it's a very strange way of thinking about God. Now, by Jesus rejecting the practice of oaths and vows, I think one of the things he's saying is, now, that's not how things work now. He's saying God isn't far removed from us and disinterested in our lives 90% of the time. No, no, he's coming very, very close to us now. The communities of the king are to be places where the king actually lives. And he doesn't just hear what we say and see what we do when we deliberately bring them to his attention. No, he hears and he sees all the time because this is where he lives, because he's among us. He's with us. Our bodies are temple of, temples of the Holy Spirit. Our churches are dwelling places for the Spirit. The kingdom of God is a place of God's presence. And this is amazing news. Please, every week we need to say this with all these instructions that seem so difficult and so hard and why is God putting the bar so high all the time he's saying but you're not to do this alone I'm with you I'm sending my spirit to you I'm keeping working on your hearts I'm keeping coming alongside you and encouraging and comforting and challenging and healing and restoring because I'm with you because the kingdom's a place of my presence in all of these teachings, please don't think you're supposed to do these things alone. Yes, as I've said, because you're, you should be in community with others who are helping you. But, but more than that, because God himself is to be with you. The king is to be with you. It's great news. And it genuinely is great news. But it comes with a challenge too, doesn't it? Remember back to the story we said right at the beginning about Ananias and Sapphira. Remember what Peter said to Ananias. As Ananias uh, lied to the community uh, of the church, Peter said to this, this to him, you weren't lying to us, but to God. Now, if Ananias had had the chance, which if you remember from the story, he didn't, uh, he may have replied something like this. Well, wait a minute. I don't know. I didn't know that God was involved in this whole thing. I mean, I didn't make a vow. I didn't say something like, Lord, strike me down if I prove false or anything like that. To which Peter, I'm sure, would have replied, but Ananias, remember what Jesus said, we don't need vows anymore. Why? Because everything we say is before him. And what we do in the community of the king automatically involves the king because he's with us. As we close then, let's remember that as citizens of the kingdom, welcomed in by the king himself, despite actually all our poverty and all of our brokenness, we find ourselves in a hugely privileged position, but we also find ourselves with great responsibility. Let's grip hold of both of these things, shall we? Let's live thankful, worshipful lives of praise to this king who's let us come into this wonderful situation. But let's also apply that by humbly following his instructions and letting him shape our hearts. Actually, as we do so, not just in our individual lives, but in our communities themselves, what we can do is show people outside of the communities a, a different way to live, causing them to see our good deeds, 
It's not because we're good people, but because of this king who's so graciously accepted us in. They'll see our good deeds and glorify this wonderful king and get to know him themselves.